Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot from the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Helen Scales, Kat Arney, Mira Synthalingam, and I'm Chris Smith. Coming up, why there's no breathing space when it comes to the problem of ocean dead zones. And they looked at over 200 different species and looked at exactly what the threshold level was of oxygen that sustains life for all these different species. And the young larvae of the rock crab will die unless there's up to 8.6 milligrams of oxygen in every litre of water. We'll also be getting to the bottom of when HIV first appeared on the scene thanks to the discovery of a fossil virus from Africa. And also why Britain is lagging behind when it comes to cancer. Britain pretty much is one of the sick men in Europe. You know, in, in terms of football league tables, we're drifting towards the relegation zone. In fact, in Britain, our major problem is diagnosing cancer early. Plus, why South Africa is home to a world record-breaking railway. They run regular trains full of iron ore, and the trains have been 216 wagons. Now they've just jumped to 342. The longest train that they've run is a seven and a half kilometre train. That's all on the way. Exciting news now because scientists have come up with a clever idea which might help us to make even better body scans happen. Now, one of the things that you can do when you want to do a body scan, rather than just putting magnetism or x-rays through a patient, is to add something called a contrast agent. This goes into various parts of the body and what it does is soak up x-rays or it amplifies a magnetic signal so that different tissues can be seen more clearly on the scan. A good example of this is something like a barium enema or a barium meal. When someone swallows some barium, the barium soaks up x-rays, so when the patient gets put into a scanner, the x-rays don't go through the barium as well, and since the barium should be coating the surface of, say, the intestine, it means that the wall of the intestine becomes much clearer. Thing is, though, when you want to scan organs and look at the blood supply to those organs, if you want to put a contrast agent into the blood supply... Because blood is moving, it keeps washing the contrast agent away, and this means that you either have to give very big doses of the contrast, which can be toxic to patients, or it can also be very expensive. Now researchers have come up with a very clever idea to use our own blood cells to get around the problem. This is Mauro Magnani. He's a, he's a researcher at the University of Abino in Italy. He's teamed up with researchers at Philips, Philips Research. And what they've done is come up with a clever strategy to use red blood cells. Now, the contrast agent they're using is something called iron oxide, in other words, rust. This is a paramagnetic or a magnetic chemical, which means you can use it to act as a contrast enhancer for MRI, magnetic resonance scans. Now, if you give iron oxide into the bloodstream, it very quickly gets picked up by parts of the immune system that deal with foreign things in the body and gets flushed out, so it's difficult to pick it up for very long. So what they do is to take some red blood cells out of the body, put them into a more dilute solution, and because the cells are more concentrated than the solution around them, they start to soak up water. Water, and this makes them blow up like a balloon. And this stretching effect opens up little gaps in the membranes of the cells so that then the particles of iron oxide, nanoparticles, can get inside the cells. They then put them back in a normal solution, the cells shrink down, but now the nanoparticles are trapped inside. So you then reinfuse those particles inside the cells back into the patient and they then circulate for the lifetime of the red blood cell, which is about 120 days, and you've effectively got contrast on tap. 
do we know doing this to blood cells is going to affect their the way they work in our blood system? Is it going to be a problem for us absorbing oxygen? Well, it shouldn't make any detrimental difference. Iron oxide, F, uh, nanoparticles like this, have already been licensed to use as a contrast agent for patients in hospital. They haven't been licensed for putting inside red blood cells. And so the next step and what they're going to be looking at in the coming months is whether this is safe and effective um, and therefore whether it can be used. Sounds good. Well, from the world of our own bodies to the world of the oceans. Now, I'm afraid I have some slightly gloomy news um, from the world of marine biology this week with a study that suggests that crabs and other crustaceans in the ocean could be the first to suffocate in the increasing number of marine dead zones in the world. And those are areas where there's very little or no oxygen. And what's more, possibly more importantly, the extent of these this areas of oxygen deprivation in the oceans could be much, much bigger than we thought before. Now, this is a study from the Mediterranean Institute for Advanced Studies in Spain, and it was published by by Raquel, um, I'm sorry, the Spanish is a problem for me, <laughs> Vaca, Sonia and Carlos Duarte, sorry guys if I got that wrong, um, they published this in the journal PNAS this week and they looked at how, at how well different types of bottom-dwelling marine creature can tolerate lower levels of oxygen. And they went through um, hundreds of other studies that were already published, so they weren't actually doing their own research, but they were doing a sort of meta-analysis of everyone else's work. And they looked at over 200 different species and looked at exactly what the threshold level was of oxygen that sustains life for all these different species species. And what they found is that there is a great range in the tolerance of different species to how much oxygen they can tolerate, or how little oxygen if you like. Some, like the American oyster, can put up with virtually no oxygen, um, while others are very sensitive. And the young larvae of something called the rock crab will die unless there's up to 8.6 milligrams of oxygen in every litre of water. And how does that compare with the conditions you'd find in your average dead zone? Right. Well, this is the point. Um, there was a study a couple of months ago um, in the journal Science that um, looked at the global extent of these dead zones. And what they did was they took a level of 2.8 milligrams per litre of uh, oxygen um, and um, so that was considerably lower than what this new study seems to show, which actually the threshold for most, maybe 90% of bottom-dwelling life could be more like 4 milligrams of oxygen per litre, so almost twice what these guys predicted. And based on the 2.8 milligram per oxygen level, that gave us 245,000 square kilometres of ocean bed that are essentially dead, at least for part of the year. And Why that, do these things happen, Helen? It mainly comes down to something called eutrophication, which mostly is a consequence of of um, coastal pollution, mostly from the influx of fertilisers from land. And what happens is um, excess fertilisers that wash through the soils um, in the agricultural areas get into the coastal waters and they cause algal blooms. These are nutrients, mostly nitrogen and phosphorus, well, nitrates and phosphates, and they cause plants to grow in abundance. These are algae, seaweeds, tiny um, single-celled algae called phytoplankton, and they grow in abundance. But the problem happens when they die because they will then um, drop down to the bottom of the sea and then bacteria break them down and use up all the oxygen and that's what's happening mostly is what we're seeing climate change might also be making it worse because warmer water holds less oxygen so we are seeing an increase in the number of dead zones in the seas perhaps an exponential increase since the 1960s and just briefly Han, what are the implications of this because now they've shifted the goalposts for how much we think animals can or cannot tolerate the low oxygen what are the implications and what can we do about it? Well, I think the implications are, yes, we need to look at it again, just to see how big these areas might be, even bigger than we thought before. Things we need to consider are stuff like, well, water quality targets. How are we controlling the input of, of nutrients into those coastal zones? Perhaps we need to really start looking at moving those goalposts again um, to really try and look after marine biodiversity based on a lot of what we do on land. So I guess the next few years are going to be quite critical for this. Thanks, Helen. Now, 
uh, to another subject, which is probably the worst pandemic mankind has ever seen. And we talk about flu being a big problem, but HIV has eclipsed everything we've ever seen. And a big question is, where did it come from and when? Well, researchers, by genetically analysing HIV, have got a pretty clear idea as to where, where HIV originated. Its closest living relative is a strain of a, a virus called SIV, which is found in chimpanzees. So we think that the virus jumped out of chimpanzees and got into humans. Big question, though, is when did that happen? Because that gives us some clues as to what might have triggered it. Because if you can narrow it down to a, a time in history, you can also look at what else was happening geographically at that time to try and work out what might have triggered this jump. Because understanding these jumps is really important. Because if you can unleash pandemics like this relatively easily, we need to know how to stop them. Because we don't want this to happen every day of the week. Uh, Michael Warraby is a researcher at the University of Arizona, and he has a paper in this week's journal, Nature. Um, and what he's done is to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo and they have found some old tissue samples from the 1960s. These are tissue samples that were collected from patients being treated for other things in hospital. They were kept in paraffin. So when you take a tissue sample, it's fixed in formaldehyde and then put into paraffin. And this is kept in pristine condition. And the researchers have been able to extract genetic material from these tissue samples. There are a number from quite a few patients. And in that genetic material, they found the sequences of HIV. And by comparing those genetic sequences with HIV today and also another sample of HIV that turned up in a blood specimen from 1959, they've been able to work out roughly how fast HIV evolves and changes as it spreads from one person to the next. And by comparing these two viruses, also then wind the genetic clock backwards to try and predict where HIV turned up on the scene first. And the answer is, it looks like 1908 with a possible range of 1884 to 1924, is the most likely date when HIV first surfaced in humans. Why is that date significant? Well, this is the time when colonial powers first began to establish big cities in what was then the Belgian Congo. It was a Belgian colony, now, now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, and big cities like Kinshasa, at the time Leopoldville, first got established. And what the researchers are saying is it could have been the influx of Westerners, big cities, putting small numbers of cases of what was to become HIV in people in very close proximity to other people, and the virus then began to spread amongst those people, possibly helped by things like vaccination strategies. There are records from around the same time of 70,000 people being vaccinated with the same seven syringes, and if anything is going to start a pandemic, that could. So this looks like pretty good evidence that HIV started in about 1908. And it also tips the balance well away from a claim made a few years back that another source of HIV could have been the oral polio vaccine because this was being developed in the Congo in the 1950s and some people had suggested that perhaps tissue culture techniques used at the time could have led to the virus jumping into people. But the fact that the virus couldn't possibly have evolved enough to, to have become like these two specimens they've now got um, argues strongly against that. So that's, that's a, an interesting finding in terms of where HIV came from, we think. It's, it's fascinating how genetics can keep, let us really um, unfold what happened in the past and really gives, give us an insight into history and with very much modern-day applications. That's really quite, quite amazing. Well, I'm going to finish off with a slightly more upbeat uh, story about beetles from the wonderful world of beetles, which we have now discovered enlist the assistance of bacteria to help protect their fungal food stores from attack by other fungal invaders. Now, this is according to a study published this week in the journal Science by a team of researchers led by Jared Scott from the University of wisconsin 
Madison. Now, these are southern pine beetles, and they're a major pest in the southern United States where they infest pine trees and plantations and cause millions of pounds worth of damage every year. And the adult beetles dig tunnels under the bark of these pine trees and infest them with a particular strain of fungi, which they eat. Well, they actually feed it to their larvae when they're growing. Um, and they carry the, the, the fungus on their own bodies, the adults do, on a little pouch called a mycangium, and then they um, inoculate the trees that they live in. Now, we already know that these, this particular type of fungus are carefully farmed and that there's another fungus um, that actually disrupts the development of the food fungus. And if that comes along, um, then the beetles um, the, aren't able to feed their larvae as much. Now, what Scott and his team have discovered is that the beetles actually play host to two types of bacteria. And these produce antibiotics, which keep the invading fungus at bay, but leave alone the beneficial food fungus, which is rather wonderful. It's really exciting because that's a direct parallel of uh, actually a study we reported here on The Naked Scientist quite a few years ago, about two or three years ago now, um, of a paper in Science looking at ants that are leaf cutters. And leaf cutter ants, as you know, go to leaves, they cut chunks off, they take the chunk back to their nest, and lots of people think they eat the leaf, but they don't. They inoculate the leaf with a fungus, exactly like the beetles you've been talking about, Helen, and the fungus then breaks down the leaf and the ants eat the fungus. But there's another fungus that comes in which can destroy that healthy fungus and also infect the ants and harm them. So the ants have little pouches which are fed by the ant equivalent of a sweat gland and in these pouches they nurture a kind of bacterium. In this case it's a bacterium, I think it was Pseudonocardia, which produces an antibiotic, ba-boom, which they can then sprinkle around themselves and their nest and it suppresses the bad fungus and encourages the good fungus. So I wonder when they come to examine this a bit more carefully, whether the genes involved or, or even the, the bacteria involved are going to be the same. It, I, I think they're saying that this antibiotic in the, in, the, in the beetles is a new one that we haven't seen before, which is very exciting. That could lead to its own uh, developments. And the other thing is that these beetles really are a pest. They are a problem. So if we can maybe fiddle around or figure out a way of interfering with these bacteria, perhaps we can get rid of the beetles. Thanks, Helen. Now, also this week, scientists have been gathering in Birmingham for the National Annual Cancer Research Institute, or NCRI, Cancer Conference, and that's to discuss the latest strategies for preventing, diagnosing and treating the disease. Katani has been there for The Naked Scientist. Well, I'm here at the NCRI conference. That's the National Cancer Research Institute, which is an organisation that brings together all the funders of cancer research here in the UK. So that's pieces of people like the government, charities, all sorts of organisations that are funding cancer research. And the conference is really a fantastic opportunity to showcase what's going on in the world of cancer research. So we've got everyone from people doing the really fundamental lab research. We had a talk this afternoon from Professor Tony Kuzaridis from Cambridge University, who's looking right at the sort of the molecular post-it notes that are put on our DNA that are important in cancer. Right now we're sitting above the lecture theatre and there's someone talking about the importance of dying with dignity when people come to the end of their journey with cancer. There's going to be a, everything from, from the very basic research through to the sort of the, the much more quality of life, patient care kind of areas. But Kat, what's the, the problem with the UK allegedly not doing so well on the cancer stakes compared with the rest of Europe? Exactly. The first lecture of the conference today was from Professor Michelle Coleman from London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he's one of the world's leading epidemiologists. That's someone who studies the sort of the statistics and the populations to do with cancer. And he was pointing out that there have been a lot of studies, these Eurocare studies, that have shown that, that Britain pretty much is one of the sick men in Europe. You know, in, in terms of football league tables, we're drifting towards the relegation zone. And this is happening for a number of reasons. Uh, for a start, the Eurocare studies are 
using relatively old data. So in fact, here in the UK, uh, around the sort of year 2000, 2002, we brought in a cancer plan. So we are turning around what we're doing. But it has shown that basically the, the UK has been falling behind. But it's not actually what people think. It's not all about access to drugs. Um, it's actually really to do with early detection. And that was one of the most interesting results that he showed, that when you look at five-year survival rates across Europe, this is the, the standard benchmark that people use for how long do people survive cancer, you know, for five years, uh, how many people survive that long. If you take out from those statistics all the people who, who die from cancer within a year, and that's people who basically their cancers were diagnosed very, very late, very advanced tumours, if you take those people out of the equation... Britain actually really comes back in line with the European average. So this tells us that, in fact, in Britain, our major problem is diagnosing cancer early. And why is that? Well, it's a number of reasons. Um, there's obviously a problem with just educating people, that we need to get more information out there about what the symptoms of cancer are and that people should really not just get the stiff upper lip and think, oh, it'll probably go away if I ignore it. Go to the doctor. Um, there's also an issue with educating GPs as well to spot when someone presenting with certain symptoms may actually have cancer and you think well cancer is a relatively common disease but actually GPs may only see maybe six to ten patients a year who actually do have cancer in a, in a list of maybe two three thousand patients so it's not really that common for each GP so we need to do more in education for GPs and the public and then also more in things like CT scanning MRI scanning to try and really get cancer detected as early as possible. And just very briefly, Kat, before we move on, um, I know we're coming back to you shortly, but also there's a story this week about how computers can help to read mammograms, which might help to bring up the prediction and detection rate. Well, exactly. And this kind of ties into the whole early detection thing. So in the UK, we have a, a fantastic programme of breast screening run by the NHS, and it does save thousands of lives. Uh, and it invites all women in their 50s, uh, from 50 to 70, to go for a mammogram every three years. And every mammogram is read by two doctors. So two radiologists look at it, look for any sort of dodgy spots and decide whether to call the woman back or not. And now what these researchers, led by Professor Fiona Gilbert at the University of Aberdeen, have shown is that you can use one doctor and a computer-aided detection system. And how this works is the computer system scans through the mammogram and spots anything that it thinks looks suspicious. And then the doctor looks at it and goes, yep, that looks dodgy. No, actually, that's just, you know, sort of a, an area of fluff or whatever. Um, and then you only need to have one doctor's time per mammogram. So basically, you're, you're halving the workload for doctors. And this is really important because in some areas of the country, we're, we're seeing screening, the interval of screening is meant to be three years, but we're seeing it drift out to three and a half, four years because there simply aren't the resources. So this could be a really great way to get more women screened and to, to help to ease the pressure on the screening services. Kat Arney reporting from the National Cancer Research Institute Conference in Birmingham. And finally this week, to South Africa, where it seems transport on a massive scale is the order of the day. And talking to Mira Senthalingam, here's Calvin Kem. Yes, on the long iron ore trains that run from Sishin down to Saldana. Sishin is a small town inland where there's a large amount of very high quality iron ore and 861 kilometres of rail line down to Saldana, which is the port. They run regular trains full of iron ore, and the trains have been 216 wagons. Now they've just jumped to 342. The longest train that they've run is a 7.5-kilometer train. It steadily moves along, taking 18 hours to get down to the coast. 
Now, it's a very interesting train because they call it an RDP train, which is a radio distributed power train. A thing of that size and that weight, you can't just sort of put the brakes on at the front because the whole weight of that thing moving will push the train off the tracks. So there's a complex electronic radio system all the way down the train that ensures that the airlines have got this correct pressures. There's also temperature sensitive. If the temperature drops and therefore the air in the brakes is going to contract, it takes account of this and it accommodates it. And as the brakes are coming on down the train, it's distributed the power so that the train all slows down at the right sort of speed and so on. So it's quite a complex train. It's not just like the old one where you just sort of link all the wagons up and pull it. It's a, a whole big, long computer-controlled system. What about if you were to do an emergency brake? Would that work quite quickly? Yes, relatively speaking, but still it would take some distance to slow down with a train of that size. They're very big locomotives. In fact, there's two types of loco that pull this train, the Class 9E electrical locomotive and a thing called the Class 34 diesel. And the 9E are the only 50,000-volt locomotives in the world. So these are big things. It's quite a job to stop a train of, of that sort of weight. How often does the train actually go? So how many times a week? They're running the 216 wagon trains at the moment and the 342s. And the 216s are doing 58 trips a week. That's 29 each way. And the 342 wagons are doing 12 trips a week. That's six each way. And uh, the second record that was broken as well was the total number of tons transported in a week, which is the new record of 752,000 tons of iron ore. So there's this constant flow of iron ore out of the Port of Saldana that then is distributed around the world. Why did they decide to make such an increase? Well, it's just trying to export as much as possible. At the moment, this now has gone up to a rate of 40 million tons per annum. But they're aiming to go up to about 65 million tons by about 2011 and something like 88 million tons by 2013. And it just shows you how much iron the world needs. As fast as we can get it out of the country, there seems to be a market for it somewhere in the world. Moving from an extremely long train to what could be an extremely large database, scientists are going to be fingerprinting trees, are they, Kelvin? Absolutely, that's what's now happening. There's going to be a meeting in uh, Johannesburg next month, scientists from seven countries coming along, for a project called TREEBOL, and TREEBOL stands for the Tree Barcode of Life. And what has happened is uh, Dr. Michelle van der Bank and an Olufia Morin from the University of Johannesburg have discovered a particular piece of gene sequence, which they call MATK, which enables them to effectively barcode trees. Why is this particular gene region good to be used as a barcode? Well, this whole uh, idea of this barcoding was actually discovered in 2003 by Canadian scientist Professor Paul Herbert. But it wasn't until they found this particular piece called MATK that was found here at the University of Johannesburg that they found that there were four basic building blocks of the DNA that, depending on their order, would give a fingerprint essentially for each different type of plant. And it was the discovery that that is a labeling possibility that actually made it possible to now use this uh, as a positive identification for each species. Which parts of Africa has it specifically been used in so far? Well, it's started largely here, and then there's also some work being done in Nigeria, and then a few others elsewhere where people are getting interested. Now, this discovery of the, the MET-K only came about in February, so you know, I would imagine that a number of the other African countries now would be immediately interested. So what do you think the overall kind of benefits are of this project, and what do, where do you think it will go next? Now, an interesting statistic is that in Europe there's a total of 340 tree species, Africa has 20,000, and there's probably a lot more than that that they don't yet know about. 
Now, already there's something like 300 species of timber trees that are on the CITES protected list. Now, it's bad enough sometimes trying to identify one tree from another, but when it's been cut up and the bark has been stripped off and it's maybe being exported illegally, it's very difficult to tell whether the tree that's being uh, say, taken out of the country is one of the protected species or not. This method now will enable them to barcode or identify and to tell immediately whether it's one of the critically endangered trees or not. So there's a very useful application at the end of all of this. Calvin Kem from Pretoria in South Africa talking to Mira Senthalingam. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. The Naked Scientist News Flash was produced this week by Ben Valsler and I'm Chris Smith. There's more news on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. We'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.